I think the purpose why you plant a church is, is for people. Um, the, the, the Great Commission compels us to, to go and make disciples of, of all nations and um, really church planting is, is about people. We are Jeff and Larissa Toomer and we are church planters in Alexandria, Virginia. So we went to a church planting conference about a year and a half ago just on the way back, uh, she took a, uh, a notepad out and just said, well, what do you think about when you think of church? And, and of course, we're brainstorming, um, trying to think of, of names to call this this thing that God is, is building in us. And, you know, I, I looked at her and I said, you know, I always say life's a journey. You know, life's a, a, a journey. Um, this place is not our home. That there's more to life than just what we're experiencing right now. We took this word journey and came up with transit, the transit. Our mission, you know, is the mission of, of every church to make disciples, specifically where God has planted us in, in Kingstown, Alexandria, Virginia, and however that will spill over into the surrounding region. The vision that God has given us is lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and communities that are impacted. And what we see in that is people coming together from all walks of life, all ethnicities, multi-generational, doing life together, and the gospel both forming us and transforming us. Forming us into a community of people who live for God and transforming us to be more like Jesus. That really is our dream here for this community, that we would be transformed by the gospel, but also it would be the transforming agent for those things that are around us. The best way to, to grow as a disciple is, is rubbing shoulders and, and elbows with someone else who is on that same journey. And we're excited to find those people here who want to join the journey with us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I looked so young then, didn't I? <laughs> Grab your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Notice how it's just, let's move on. Life happens, you got to move on, you got to go with it. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to be uh, looking at four verses here, five verses, uh, starting at verse 19. If you don't have a Bible, then there are some down the center column of seats, you can grab one, and in that Bible, uh, Ephesians is going to be around 634, that's the page number. We're going to read these few verses together out loud and, uh, and work together as we're talking about the church today. Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 19 through 22. Read these aloud with me. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pause to say thank you. We're thanking you for um, five years as a church. And uh, we are, we're only here in this place doing what we're doing today by your grace. Uh, Lord, you build your church. The church belongs to you. Um, we are your church. So we thank you for being our head. Jesus, uh, we thank you that you've saved us and that you've brought us to uh, the, the myriad of places where we are, but that together uh, we are your church. We're transit church, and we thank you for your word. God, I pray that um, as we think about um, five years as a church and uh, what you've done uh, to bring us to this point, I pray that you'd help me to articulate um, our, our values, what's important to us, uh, but more importantly, Lord, that help us to see what's important to you as Paul lays out some very important words about your church, and I pray that in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. So for the, so April is our, uh, typically when we celebrate our church anniversary, and, you know, sometimes in the past couple of years, we've just, it's been like a speed bump. We've, you know, mentioned it, say, hey, it's our anniversary, and, and go on. But this year, because it's five, we want to sort of pause and thank God for what he's doing. Look back a bit, reflect on the journey so far, and also uh, just dream a little bit by God's grace what he would have us to become uh, in the next five or perhaps more years as a church. You know, Transit Church has humble beginnings. You saw a little bit of it, heard a little bit of it in the video there. Uh, every church has humble beginnings, from the, the small church uh, that meets in someone's home, a house church, to the mega church that's, that takes up a couple blocks 
on a street, and our church is no different. So my wife and I felt called to plant a church beginning in 2002. Uh, I was still in the Army. I was a young major. I was right around the phase of life that several of you are in our church right now. A young family, young kids. I think Jonathan was maybe four years old. David was two. Zoe wasn't even in existence. Uh, we have, weren't even thinking about her. And uh, we were going to a church that uh, was missional, outward, and uh, they sort of had some church planters featured, and I mean, we grabbed hold of that. I had never heard the word church and planting in the same sentence in my entire life. Of course, I didn't grow up as a Christian, but God used that, planted a seed, and oh, by the way, it would take us 10 years to see you know, this thing. I guess it would take, better said, it would take 10 years for the seed planted in 2002 of church planting for that to, to, to blossom and to come to fruition. Um, and I think what you should take from that is sometimes God calls you to something that he actually, I mean, he, he plants a seed, waters it, and it has to grow like almost under the ground, uh, hidden for, for many years before it comes out and you're doing the thing that he intends for you to do. So if you are here today and you feel called to something, know that sometimes God has to work things in you, like hope and belief and faith, like the thing that he, you need to be able to do the thing he's calling you to. But sometimes he has to work some stuff out of you, like, right? Like, you need to grow up. You need to stop doing this, stop doing that. And those are some of the things that we went through uh, in those years as we were working towards this idea of, of planning a church. So if you feel called to something, anything, don't lose heart. God is at work in your life. So we came to Northern Virginia in the fall of 2012 to start a church. And really our goal from the beginning was to gather people um, under the, the guise of the gospel and that biblical truth would be our foundation and that we would center on the person and work of Jesus and that you know, we would create a church where community was a thing that we value. Uh, community in uh, the the how the church came together in itself, but also the community around us, that, that we would be infected by the gospel, and that in turn would cause us to affect the community around us. And that really is still our, our goals. I never could have imagined that church planning would be so hard. I've done some hard things. I spent 20 years in the Army, plus my time at West Point, so I've done some, some hard things. I mean, you saw in the video, look how young I looked. I had hair. I had an afro. My, my, uh, my hairline was all the way down, like right above my eyebrows. <laughs> Now I have no hair and my, my hair is all gray. Y'all have worn me out. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Church planning is a hard thing, and you shouldn't do it without God calling you to it. Uh, and we are really thankful for the Lord for, for where he's put us. Here's the, great, here's the, the thing that I cherish most about uh, my role as a pastor and a church planner is getting to, to shepherd people like you. You're, you're a special congregation. Uh, a lot of y'all are military, so I, I know you. I know the things that you deal with. I know your lifestyle. And the others of you are, you know, in the craze of, of this place that we call D.C. And this is our home. And so I love, I love being here. Our family, I mean, our kids are thriving here. This is a place God has brought us. And it's, um, it's just a blessing to us to be able to do what we're doing. So we're going to look at the church today. You know, a, a, a church plant I like to say this. This isn't necessarily quite true. I don't have a chapter and verse for that. But um, to plant a church is to take part in a miracle. Okay, it's it's the creation of something out of nothing. You don't do it. God is doing it, and he obviously he just happens to use people to do it. Um, and so there there are. I mean, many reasons to start a church. But I mean, one of the primary reason is you're trying to reach reach people. And so that really is what we're doing here. And so the past five years, uh, really for any church to exist past three years, to become self-sustaining, to get past five years is a miracle in and of itself. And so that's why we're celebrating. We're still here. Um, and, uh, and we thank God for that. So today we're going to talk about the church strategically, why it matters, what is the church. And then for the next two weeks, we're going to talk a little bit more practically and specifically about Transit Church, our vision, and then you know what we see God doing in us in perhaps some, some future years. And so in our text, this is what Paul's talking about. He's talking about the church. He's talking about why the church matters. And there's many biblical reasons of why we could say the church exists. Uh, from the very beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, put them in the garden and, uh, and gave them a mission to, to subdue the earth and, 
you know, sort of be in charge as vice regents over the earth. God has always had a church. And in the history of redemption, we see that church becomes the patriarchs and the patriarchs become the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel in the New Testament becomes the, the people of God. Jesus comes, gathers some disciples. He gives them the spirit. He dies in our place for our sin, resurrects. He commissions the apostles to go and create the early church. And that church has blossomed into, I mean, us sitting in these seats in our current day. So that really is the church. And this, I should say there's a lot of misunderstanding as to what the church is. And so let me first start by saying what the church is not. The church is not a building. Y'all know that because we're working. I mean, we're worshiping a school, right? The church is not an event that you come to. The church is not your parents' pastime. There's so many misunderstandings really about what the church is. Some people think the church is outdated, that it's irrelevant. They say, you know what, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a fully, I'm fully immersed in the 21st century. I don't listen to eight tracks. I don't even have a tape or a CD. I do mobile banking. I don't even watch cable TV. I, I watch TV on Netflix, right? So I mean, that's kind of the life that we live in. And so they say, why would I want to go to church and root myself into something that's like, like a, a century ago with my parents and grandparents? They say the church is outdated and it's irrelevant. And there's some Christians that buy into that as well. There's also some Christians that think the church is unnecessary. They feel like that they can worship God, but don't need people to, to come alongside them to do that. You know, I, I'm all about Jesus. I love God, but I don't need to experience a church in that way. So that's what the church is not. But this is what the church is. This is uh, kind of a formal definition, but I think it's appropriate for what we're going to talk about today. The church is the redeemed people of God who gather and are sent out as disciples of Jesus Christ. And really what this means is, firstly, the church is not necessarily a building that you go to to worship God, but it's the people that you go with. The church is not an event that you attend as if it's some activity that I'm, I'm going to put it on my calendar, go to it, celebrate it, and then uh, put it off to the side until some later day. The church is a mission that you join. And lastly, the church is not a club that you sign up for. It's a family that you are invited into become to become a part of. And Paul is going to articulate those things in a few words here in Ephesians 2. He's telling us that the church is God's church and it's God's glorious plan for reaching the nations. It's his plan for revealing his wisdom to us and forming a people. And in our text, uh, Paul is using three metaphors to teach us what the church is and why it matters. He says the church is an embassy of God's kingdom. The church is a household of God's family and the church is a temple of God's presence. So we're going to look at each of those three and I'm going to finish it up by telling us what that means for us. What that means for us as transit church. So the first is the church is an embassy of God's kingdom. So Paul says to be a part of the church means to be citizens in God's kingdom. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. If you were to back up a couple of verses in chapter two, Paul is speaking to um, Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles. A Gentile in the New Testament are people, just anybody who's not a Jew. And so he particularly talks to the Gentiles and says that they were at some point outside of the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers and aliens. In other words, they were not citizens. They weren't a part of God's people. And this is an issue that's not too far from us, not in a spiritual sense, but in the sense that we have this ongoing national debate right now about immigration, about dreamers who were the, the kids of, of immigrants to our country. And the question is, I mean, what rights do they have? What rights should they have? I mean, why do we even let them in here? Should we, um, should we adjudicate in terms of letting some in and not others? And because I can feel the temperature, the political temperature of the room just rising, even as I talk about those things, right? I mean, those things divide us, don't they? Because we all have ideas about our country and who should come in. Oh, by the way, y'all do know that all your ancestors are immigrants, right? Okay. All right. I'm going to move on. But we've experienced this in other ways, right? If you've ever gone outside of the United States, Oconus, and you've gone through customs, you know, I mean, th that reminds you um, 
it just alerts you that so you can go some places where you aren't a native citizen and therefore you don't have the rights as a native. You go through customs, first thing you're going to do is go through passport control and passport control is going to divide you into citizen and non-citizen. And if you're a citizen, it's going to be an easy process. They're going to make sure, yeah, you're good to go. You go get your bags. You're already out of the airport, gone on to your final destination, right? But if you're not, not a citizen of, the, of a country that you're going into, it's going to take a while, right? I mean, there's Basil just went to uh, France. I was going to say Spain, Basil. Just went to France, and he told me he stood in line for like an hour getting through customs. That's on the way back, coming into the United States. In these, in these days of terrorism, of course, it, there's more scrutiny in us coming and going. And so uh, it's just not an easy process. And you're reminded going in through, even going through customs that you uh, entering a foreign nation are not a native. You don't have the same status, privilege, and identity as a native citizen. And so Paul is saying that same thing to Jews and Gentiles in Ephesus. And they naturally felt this divide. And so when he says to be a stranger and alien, what he's saying is it means that you're outside of all those people who have the natural privileges of being uh, on the in-group. But here's the cool thing that Paul does. He alerts them that because of Jesus, that they have gone from people who had no hope, had no true belonging, were destined for an external existence without God to being brought near. You were on the outside. You have been brought near. How? Through the blood and body of Jesus, through his person and work, he has reconciled you by his blood so that you are now brought near firstly to God, but also brought near to each other. And of course, this is talking really about two things. Firstly, it's mirroring the way that all of us become Christians, that we're outside of the church and by the work and person of Jesus, he includes us into his family. But secondly, and more importantly, as we're talking about the collective church, it's talking about the way that God, through Jesus, divides the wall of hostility. All those things that naturally separate us and divide us, he tears those down by the work that he does on the cross and 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 gives us good news that potentially brings us together. Estranged persons that are brought together. And what, the, what this particularly means, at least for me, the way I see it, is no one exclu is excluded. No one is potentially excluded from the church. All who confess Jesus are welcome. Red, brown, yellow, black, and white, they are all precious in his sight. The kid's song goes, doesn't it? And so by the blood of Jesus, we're reconciled not only to God, but to each other. And this day that we live in in the United States of America, I mean, right now, not just the political climate, but the cultural climate where there's so much that's divisive amongst us. Paul is saying the church is the place where we should at least find a modicum of unity, not uniformity. We don't have to all think alike. We don't even have to all agree, but we should be able to be unified on the same sheet of paper. Why? Because we have a common Jesus. Amen. That's what he's saying. And so Paul's reminding these Jews and Gentiles in Ephesus that because of the one body Jesus that you are united in, you have been made citizens of God's kingdom. Now, Paul doesn't develop this idea of kingdom here in this text. He'll do it elsewhere. But this is really what he's alluding to, that we are citizens of God's kingdom. In fact, we have dual citizenship. He'll say that in Ephesians 1. He says, you are people of wherever you live. So we live in D.C. Metro and in many of the suburbs of D.C. is where all of us live. But we're also and we're primarily, as we become Christians, citizens of heaven. And so although we shouldn't be poor citizens of, of, of earth, our primary allegiance is, is, to, to, the, is to the real king, is, is to God himself. That's the, and that really is what he's calling the church, that we have become citizens of heaven. And so the church is collectively um, God's kingdom on earth. We're an embassy on earth. And you know what an embassy is, right? It's an outpost of one country that's been placed in another. And although they are operating in a foreign context, they still... Uh, adhere to the authority, the rules, the structure, and they, they hold their allegiance 
to their, their native country. And that really is what the picture of the church that Paul is painting. We live in this earthly land, but we operate as an outpost under the authority of Jesus. We live by the ways of scripture and we represent God's kingdom as it's here on earth, but as, it's, as it is in heaven. Kingdom on earth, but as it is in heaven. And our citizenship doesn't make us worse citizens of D.C. In fact, it should make us better. Why? Because we want to see the, the kingdoms come together. At some point, they will. Right? At some point, they will. But right now, he's put us here as ambassadors of this heavenly kingdom so that we would bring the principles and the rules and the culture of the kingdom to a place where sometimes it's not wanted and that we would infiltrate ever so stealthily to make this uh, this natural city like the eter- eternal city that Paul, in his thinking, says we're already a part of. And that's the church. Here's what's cool. The technical name for an embassy is a diplomatic mission. And that's what the church is called to be, uh, that we are a mission. Perhaps said differently, we are on mission, that Jesus has a mission. He's invited us to be in on it because being a citizen of God's kingdom isn't primarily about our status or our individual rights. It's not like we, we, I mean, we're touting that we get to get something by being a Christian. That's not what he's talking about. It's about having a shared mission. We are exiles in a foreign land, but as citizens of God's kingdom, we operate under his authority. We represent his character in the cities that he's placed us. That's the church. Why does the church matter? Because the church is full of citizens of heaven who collectively represent the kingdom of God on earth as an embassy. That's the first thing Paul says in our text. Here's the second. The church is the household of God's family. Verse 19, he says, we are members of the household of God. So not only have we been brought into a kingdom, we have, I mean, it's those of us who did not have a people, we did not have a, a natural spiritual belonging, and God has brought us in, but he's also brought us into the king's palace, if you will. He's brought us to the king's table, if you will. And in fact, he's made us sons and daughters of the king himself. That's what Paul is saying when he says that we are members of the household of God. This phrase, um, members of the household of God, is one word in the Greek. It's a derivative of the, the Greek word oikos. It's where we get the word economy. Um, every house has a particular ethos, an economy, a dynamic of how things work. And so think about going to someone's house for the first time. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with them, if not, if not your friend, they're just, you're an acquaintance, you're going in to do something, get something, just visiting. Uh, you, I mean, before you just start doing stuff, you got to figure out, well, how does this family work? Uh, how do we greet each other when we come to the door? Do I take my shoes off or keep them on? Where do the kids put their bags when they come into the house? Do they put them at the door? Do they take them to their room? Do they, is there a mud room? Uh, how does this family uh, operate around the dinner table? Where do people sit? I mean, who gets food first? Do they, do they say a prayer? I mean, who has control over different spaces in the house? Is that dad's chair where he watches TV and drinks a beer? Is that, I mean, is this, is this mom's chair where she like, Tells me what to do. I mean, all those, kind, all those kind of. Th- I don't know why I said that like that. <laughs> and so the Bible presents really this the same kind of dynamic for the church. There's a special way that it, that it operates. The household of God has the household of God has its own dynamic, its own economy. It's shaped by the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And among that dynamic, Paul says membership matters. That's a phrase that I use. I stole it from Paul. Uh, I use it in our membership class. And I use it under this guys. Um, you know, this is not a foreign concept to us. We are members of a lot of organizations and clubs and things. And we do that because we are wanting to partake in those things. Sometimes we pay, actually, to be members of these clubs and organizations and voluntary organizations. And that's what's the Bible. The Bible represents the same thing that the church represents this uh, composition of members as well. The local church as an entity is made up of multiple individuals, and yet here's the picture. They are so highly integrated that they are collectively one. Okay, and, and in fact, Paul would say in, in Romans 12 that they are said to be one of another. And here he doesn't use the word uh, member, he uses the word household. What's a household? It's where a family dwells. You know the difference between a house and a home? Well, a house is, I mean, a house can be 
it's just concrete and it's wood and it's screws and it's nails and all the stuff that makes up the structure for which at some point it's going to be a dwelling. It provides shelter. But a house doesn't become a home until you move in it and you paint the walls and you put up pictures and you, um, you start doing life in it. You start yelling at the kids and playing outside and cooking dinner and having life experience where the rhythms of the family start happening. And that's what takes a house into a home. You know what? You can have this beautiful, ornate structure and call it a house, but it, I mean, it, it, a home really is, is representing intimacy. It represents security. It represents belonging. And that's what the church is meant to be. Not a house, but a home with a particular dynamic. And this is the beautiful picture I think that Paul is trying to paint for us as the church. What is the church? The church is a family. But let's be honest. Family can be hard, can't it? Man. I know some of you all, and I know some of your immediate family and definitely your extended family. I mean, it's just a work. I think of uh, me and my brother. My brother was my idol growing up. I loved him. I still love him. Uh, but me and my brother had some spats, some spats that if I had, like, like real hate in my heart, I would have took him out, <laughs> right? And so some of us have that difficult with the family, that family is not always pretty, nor is it always easy. And if we had the opportunity with some of our siblings and our parents, we would have ended the relationship sooner than later. But I think that's what makes family so special, right? It produces something in us that if we stick with it, it produces a depth. And I think that's what the church is supposed to be. There's a, it's not easy, but it's, there's a depth to it. You know, the Bible has a word for it. It calls it covenant. Paul doesn't talk on that here. Uh, what does covenant do? It binds us together. When the going gets tough, what do we got to be refreshed of? You know what? I'm in covenant with you. Why do people get divorced? Because they don't realize they're not in a contract. They're in a covenant, a binding agreement that has stipulations to it. And oh, by the way, spiritually, God is governing it. So this allows us to see the dynamic in the household of God and that we are being called to. You know, it's real easy to have this theoretical understanding of what the church is, but yet not live that out. Don't y'all know so many people who reject the church and don't get involved because it doesn't meet the standard of what they think that church community should be like? Someone once said, idealism is the enemy of, of authentic community. And sometimes... I mean, we just opt out because we have this ideal in our head and what the realism doesn't doesn't match the ideal and we just give up. And that's why we need to have the right expectations about church when it comes to church. You know, some of us, we come to church and we think it's a hospital, right? And a church, I mean, it kind of sort of should be a hospital. In a hospital, you want people to, to come and heal you of your emotional pain, of your spiritual pain, of your physical pain. And surely a church should do some of that. Some of you want the church to be a club, right? I mean, come up here and I, you should have activities and programs and like make me smile and laugh. And I want to be happy in one moment and just feel the emotion of, 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 of whatever in the next moment. And a church should do a little bit of that as well. But if your expectation that is that the church is one of those things and we don't meet that, then what do you do? Well, I'm going to find another church. I'm looking for something else. And I don't think it's supposed to work that way. In the household of God, there is a mutuality of our relationships. It's tit for tat. God knows what you need. And he, he's created the church, and so he's created the church to provide that. But what I don't think that most of us know that we need is we don't just need to be served, but we need to also have an avenue by which we serve others. And that's what the church is for, the household of God. So when it comes to the church, we, we do need to have some right expectations. I got three for you. These are just from Jeff. This is my present to you this morning. All right. So the first thing is we should expect the church to be hard and that we'll have to commit to it. And why is that? Because that's how family works, right? We should expect forming a church community to take time and to require patience. Why is that? Because that's how family works. We should expect church to be messy and that you'll have to, have, have to get your hands a little dirty. Why is that? Because people are messy. And if you're going to deal with messy people, you're going to get a little dirty. That's how family works. You'll know that your church community is starting to be more authentic when it begins to resemble family life. That's when I can come with bad hair, red eyes, bad breath, and you still love me. 
It's when I don't have to put on my good face. I can come in like all ugly, all kind of ugly, just shoes not matching, dirty underwear, <laughs> right? And you choose to still love me. It means I can come to you and I can confess, you know, my, my life is sort of jacked up right now. And you still have grace for me. And not only that, you're willing to work through that with me. And I think that when we get to resemble church like that, that actually is the church that Jesus bled and died for. That's what he bled and died for. And when we are starting to mirror that in our corporate setting, then uh, we're getting to be the church that Jesus wants us to be. But that's also why we have community groups, because even in a church of our size, it's hard to get to know or allow people in this kind of corporate setting to get to know you. And so we divide up into community groups and a community group uh, is, is there for a number of reasons. Firstly, we don't we don't have community groups because we think you need another hobby. Y'all are busy. Y'all don't need another hobby to do. We don't have community groups because we think you need a program to be involved in. We have community groups because we think it's the nature of the church. It's like Acts 2, 42 through 47. It says that they gathered together in the temple courts. That's when they came to corporate worship. They lifted up Jesus in song and in prayer. They came together for the preach word. They celebrated the gospel through communion and the sacraments. And we're supposed to do that. But they also broke up into house churches into each other's homes. Why? Because we need a dose of other people in our life to confess our sins to, to, re, uh, to engage with, to do the one another of scripture, to fellowship with and do Bible study and to rehearse the, the word that we've heard preached and to, to be the community outside of the gathered community. Don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together, but to do it all the more as you see the days approaching. We do that corporately, but we also do it in a scattered kind of a way. And that's, that's why we emphasize community groups. We need brothers and sisters in Christ walking arm in arm with us, praying with us and for us, having someone to talk to, confess our sins to, and event to. I think that's real life community. So that's why we have community groups. Join a community group at the end of the month. So Paul says, firstly, to be a stranger and alien is to be spiritually homeless. But in Christ, what we've been brought into the household of God. And not only are we members of that body, but Christ is building uh, in Christ. We're building blocks for God's temple. That's the third thing Paul says. Uh, look at verse 21. In him, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so Paul says that we, the church, are the temple. Now, if you think about the Old Testament, the, the temple was something kind of sort different. Uh, in the Old Testament, we learned that the temple is actually the dwelling place of God. And so think Moses. When Moses wanted to meet with God, he didn't just lay down in his tent and say, Lord, I'm talking to you. He actually got up, got dressed, got in his right mind, and he went and engaged with God primarily at the temple. And fast forward to the New Testament, Paul and, and others give us this different perspective of what the temple is. Uh, he says it's God's presence, that God's presence isn't bound by a tent or building made of brick and mortar, but God actually dwells in a people. In fact, I mean, the New Testament, New Testament's perspective on temple can be a little confusing. There's, there actually is three different perspectives of the temple the New Testament gives us. Firstly, we learn that Jesus is the temple. John 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. What's he talking about? He's referring to his body, his resurrection uh, as the new temple. Jesus is the dwelling place of God. He's saying, I'm the Emmanuel, God with you. Secondly, we have the perspective that we individually are the temples of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, don't you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and that God's that spirit dwells in you? So who's the temple? Jesus is the temple, but we are also the temple. And then lastly, we have a different perspective here in Ephesians 2. It says the church is the temple of God, particularly in verse 22. It says in him. I think that's the key in him, in, in Christ. Jesus ultimately is the temple. He's, he's the dwelling place of God. Think about what John says in John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Verse 14 of chapter 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the temple. 
But as Christians, what are we told? Right here in verse 22, it says, we are in Christ. So God dwells in you because you're united to Jesus. And as much as we are united corporately to Christ, then we become also that collective dwelling place of God. And so God dwells with the church and his people. Now, Paul is telling the church at Ephesus this for a reason. They are the temple of God, particularly Uh, He wasn't trying to give them spiritual encouragement. He's reminding them of their allegiance. In Ephesus uh, existed the temple of Artemis, and Artemis was a sex goddess, and the temple was right in the middle, it's like city center, and it was like in the middle of everything. Their lives revolved around this sex goddess and what they believed that she would do in their midst. And there were prostitutes and money exchanges and sacrifices and all kind of things surrounding Artemis. And of course, these Ephesian Christians, although they know that their allegiance was to uh, uh, Herod's temple where they should have worshiped, they would have been greatly influenced by this temple of Artemis. And so Paul is reminding us, "Uh, uh, hey, Christians, oh, by the way, you're now the church, you're the temple of God. And that seems so foreign to us, doesn't it? But, you know, we got our own temples, too, don't we? I mean, we live like in a nation's capital where uh, we live in like Temple City. But not just the, you know, the, the temples in Washington, D.C. We got temples all around us. We got malls and town centers and restaurants that you like to frequent. There's all kind of things that get in our We've got sports teams. We got every professional sports team right here in D.C. It's crazy. And the demigods that we worship are the ones that come out on the field or on, in the stadium or on the field. And, and we just bow down to them because they have this great athleticism. Um, and, and the nations come to D.C. as a vacation destination. And we go and historically we look at these great people who have all, uh, long gone and we idolize them for what they've done in the monuments and statues that we take pictures of. And we do that. At temples, we worship idols and look to other things for our identity other than God. I'm not saying that you do that, but oftentimes that's what we do. And here's Paul's point. We have a different allegiance as Christians. Our allegiance is to something else. We should not spending our money at the malls or going to historic places. We are a missional church. We believe that we got to be in the culture to be change agents in it. But we shouldn't look to these things for our primary meaning or identity or security. As a church, our allegiance is to Jesus. He's our God. We are his temple. We are, our lives are both our sacrifice and our offering, Paul would say in Romans 12, 1 and 2. We are the temple. And so this is a great reminder for the church, that a church is not a building, all right? It's a people. And in fact, I mean, this, that's easy for us to remember, right? Because we come and we host church inside of a school. And that can throw us off a little bit, right? Because we still say, I'm going to church. And y'all coming right here to Hayfield Secondary School. I, I was really, I was laughing last week. So someone actually said, this is, church was over. Church was over. Uh, so we were outside just packing up, uh, jaw jacking a little bit. And uh, someone forgot something. And they said, hey, I got to go back inside the church to get, to look for something that I, that I dropped. And, uh, and I'm thinking, it's like, well, this is a school. So the, the person, so this place had, uh, transformed from just Hayfield Secondary School in this lecture hall in the middle school side to the, the place where we worship. And of course, I understood where, what they meant, right? We are the church. Uh, you know, I'm going to, we say we're going to have church. That means we're going to corporate worship, but I'm worshiping a school. And I mean, when you step into Hayfield Secondary School, you're reminded very quickly that this is a school. There's like, sometimes there's like student filth in the chairs that we like sweep out for y'all. There's gum. If you reach underneath that that chair, there's going to be some gum. Absolutely. There's signs on the walls that remind us that this is absolutely a school, right? There's like sporting events and prom stuff and graduation is near. We're reminded that we're a school, uh, in a school, but that's the cool thing. Because we, because we worship in a school, we know that we, the, the church doesn't require a building. The church doesn't require a lecture hall. The church doesn't require a, a secondary school. We are the church, and we bring the church wherever we go. And so technically, you don't go to church. You are the church. And you gather on Sunday as the church. And when you leave church, you're leaving as the church. That's the way that we should think about that. 
But here we're reminded that we are the real church. That's what Paul is talking to us about. And God's presence isn't bounded by the walls of any building that you, his people, are his church. And so this is what Paul is trying to give us a picture of. It's a multifaceted description of the church. Uh, As the embassy of God's kingdom, the church is public and outward. We should be pointing outward, looking towards bringing God's kingdom as in heaven onto earth. But the church is also the household of God's family. And in that way, it's it's personal and it's looking inward. And this is the discipleship kind of community group stuff that we do as the church. And then lastly, the church is the temple of God's presence. Uh, which means it's supernatural and it's looking upward. That means our authority and everything that we do has to be centered in who God is and what he's telling us to do, how he's telling us to worship. That's the grand description that Paul gives us of the church. But there's one more thing that Paul wants to tell us, and it's right here in the middle of our text. In fact, I skipped this verse because I wanted to come to it last. He's telling us what the church's substructure is. It's as if Paul is in the middle of us. He breaks out some blueprints and says, hey, guys, you need to know this. Here is the architecture of of my church. And he says that to us in verse 20. He says, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so here's what Jesus, here's what what Paul is saying. He said, first and foremost, scripture is the foundation of the church. It's built on the foundation of the, it's built on the authority of the apostles and prophets. He's using this picture of, remember Ephesians 4.11 that gives us the, 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 the fivefold ministry gift of the church, uh, uh, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists. He's using the primary two that we think of Old Testament, New Testament as the teaching gift. And he's saying the church is built not on those persons, but on their witness, the, the, the words, the teaching that comes out of that gift to the church. A Christian community without the authority of Scripture is like a building without a foundation. And everyone knows that a house is only good as its foundation. Jesus says in the Gospels, build your house on the rocks because it'll stand versus building on shaky ground that is built of gravel. And so here's, here's what's the, true about the church. We only have as good a foundation as our dependence on God's word. If we don't depend on the word, we're going to be on shaky ground. Jesus says the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God will not change. And so transit church scripture is our foundation. But Jesus is the cornerstone. And that I mean, that makes sense. Scripture is ultimately pointing us to Jesus. He is the one who has all authority. The cornerstone was important. It was it was a a brick that you put in Uh, in the foundation, and it adjoined two sides. And it was principally the most important part of the foundation because the strength of the foundation was found in the cornerstone. It it made the whole alignment and strength of a building. And the cornerstone is off. Everything in that building was going to be off. And here's what Paul is telling us. He's saying, metaphorically, Jesus is the cornerstone. This, This Jesus who's torn down the wall of hostility between us and himself is the temple that he's building and he's building us up in it, in its place. This temple not made by hands, not made by brick and mortar, but the temple made of relationships. That is what he's doing. But Jesus is not only the cornerstone, he's the architect of the whole building. My notes are frozen. Here we go. He's the architect of the whole building. And so Jesus is building the church. Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I love this text because it's, it's the one, it's the first scripture that I preached five years ago, about two weeks from now. And why is that? It's the first time that Jesus talks about the church. And um, Peter corroborates this. Look at 1 Peter 2, 4, 4 and 5. I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not come against it. Next slide. First uh, Peter 2, 4. I'm sorry. That was Matthew 16. And as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Paul is corroborating what what what. Um, 
Peter is corroborating what Jesus has said, is that we are, uh, Jesus is the cornerstone, but we are the individual building blocks for which he is building up the church. So who's the, who's the church? It's, it's Jesus' church, but we are the, the very foundation of it. And so lastly, I mean, what does that mean for us? I like to say in our membership class um, that we have seven core values, and I'm not going to articulate those values here, but what I like about this text, and really the reason why I'm using this text to talk about the church today, is that Paul almost directly hits on three of our, our core values. And a, a core value is a principal belief. It's, it's what you hold to be true. More than that, I like to say is this is who we want. This is what we want to be thought of us. When people say, you know, what is trans church? This is what they hold near. This is who they are. And I've got three of those, and I'm getting them from Paul's text. Firstly is the Bible. Okay, we want to be known at, uh, for our biblical truth. Scripture is the we know who God is because of what he presents in his word. That's special revelation. God has given us special revelation by telling us about himself. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 4, that uh, the, the, the word of God is able to, to teach us and to reprove us and to correct us and to train us in all righteousness. What does that mean? It means the Bible is the book of life. It means that in the Bible, in the words of God, we have everything that we need to grow in godliness. And so there, let there never be a day, Transit Church, that, one, that someone stands up here or even that our worship leaders opens uh, our corporate worship session without relying on God and his word to direct us. We want God to get the first word. We want them to get the last word. That's why we do a call to worship. That's why we do a benediction. We also want them to get all the words in the middle. I was tickled pink when uh, I'm going to call Ryan out. So Ryan, I was, I was chatting with Ryan maybe two or three months ago and just getting a little background on him um, and uh, found out he had come from another church that he was worshiping in, uh, him, and, him and Savannah. They were happy there. Uh, he was serving, actually getting paid to play the guitar. That's how good. Y'all know, y'all know how good, good he is, right? Uh, and I said, well, what are you doing here? He said, well, I mean, I, I'm not, we weren't getting enough word. I'm not going to tell you what the church is, but uh, he, he, he knew in his heart he needed more word. And he said, when you stood up there and opened your Bible, and when you, when the very, very first words out of your mouth were, open your Bibles. He said, I'm home. This is it. That warmed my heart. And I don't do that because I'm trying to tout myself. It, it's, there's, there, you don't need Jeff's opinion. Jeff has nothing for you. And so unless I'm coming up here and saying, thus saith the Lord, and it's not from what he's given me by the Spirit, it's just like, here's, here's the Bible. All right, I can give you the Bible. What God has said, I'll give you my interpretation of it as a teacher. But, I mean, this is what we need. So we want to be about the Bible, about biblical truth. Second, we want to be about Jesus. We want to be a Jesus-centered church. We want to say the name of Jesus. We want to talk about Jesus, his person and his work. To say that we are a Jesus-centered church is to make much of who Jesus is, and it primarily is work on the cross. That's the gospel. We want to be a Jesus-centered church that talks about the thing that the good news of what Jesus has done. He's come from eternity to earth to save sinners. And so, Lord, help us to say the name of Jesus, to preach the name of Jesus, to, to, to pray in Jesus' name. Church, if you come here on any day and we haven't sung about Jesus, talked about Jesus, and prayed to Jesus, then you've come on a bad day. We have become a social club or we're a cult, and you should get up and leave. Amen. And, and don't go to a church that doesn't open a Bible and talk about Jesus. Amen. Thirdly, we want to be about community. Um, community is... <laughs> community. Uh, and I say that uh, from the perspective of... We want to be a church where everyone is welcome. Anyone that confesses the name of Jesus is welcome here. Uh, D.A. Carson has this beautiful quote. My, my, my notes are no longer my notes, so 
I can't read it verbatim to you. But D.A. Carson says this. He says, in the church are people who are natural enemies of each other. They come from disparate lives. They have different incomes and different racial, ethnicity, cultural backgrounds. They have different parenting techniques. They have different political philosophies. They have different everything. But the commonality between them is they have a common Jesus. Isn't that cool? That's just right. And that's what I mean by community. And, and, and you should know church like that is hard. It's, it's real hard. Because we come from, it helps that we have a lot of you that are military, and the military helps break that barrier down before you even get here. But it's still hard because we have our thoughts on what life should be like. We have our upbringing that taught us what life was. And then we have the reality of the present. And when you try to press that in to a lot of people in close proximity to each other, and you start rubbing against each other, then my expectations and my thoughts uh, sort of bump into yours. And we might have some some disagreements, but God has called us to work through the disagreement. He's not called us to be in uniformity, but to be in unity. What are we unified about? We're unified about the, about the gospel. We're unified about the Bible. We're unified about Jesus, his person, his work, and what that does for me as a, as a person, inviting me into his family, just changing my whole direction of my life. And, and we're, we're united on the fact that he saves sinners. Tell you what, church, that's the, that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. That's the kind of church that, that we're trying to build here. Are we getting there? Slowly. Slowly. But that's God's, that's God's doing. And I may not see the end goal of that. I, that may, there may be two or three pastors that come as we're still trying to build this thing. But this is my, this is my dedication to you. Let's do it together. Let, let's do this together. Let's be on the journey together. Making much of Jesus, putting the Bible first, and building a community that would be glorious to God, but also to the community around us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. This is such a glorious picture of what you want us to become. Thank you that you give us an idea of who you are from your word, that you give us an idea of who we are and then how we are to respond. Interestingly, in another passage, the psalmist would say that this Jesus, who is the cornerstone, uh, of our lives, he's the one that we reject. But that one that you reject, you raise up. And, uh, and Lord, help us in, in our rejection of Jesus to confess our sin, to repent, and to turn and come back to him. God, if there's someone here today who, even in the hearing of my words, Lord, um, doesn't hold Jesus as their cornerstone, God, would you press in their lives and help them to see him as he is, uh, high and lifted up. As a, as a savior to sinners and one who wants to come and, uh, and make himself known to them. Uh, Lord, help us as a church. Help us to live uh, what Paul talks about, this idea of, of walls being broken down and us being invited to his family, of us being this embassy where we're displaying the, the, the culture of the kingdom on earth as it is, as it is in heaven. And help us to be this this tapestry, this beautiful community of people who live disparate lives, but who've come together only because of Jesus. And I pray that in his name. Amen and amen.